Republicans are playing with fire in a dynamite factory. Hmm. Sounds like fun. Sounds like Republicans. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Hey, yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Red Bluff and Redding in California on KFOI and Round Mountains, KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, Going to talk about Wisconsin and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for what looks like it is going to be a tale of two potential impeachments. So fun. Plus, Desi Doyen and her Green News report. Now that's fun. If time allows. So, oh, it'll allow. Okay, we'll see. Anyway, let's uh, let's start here. 11 days ago, just 11 days ago, on September 2, Fox News reported, uh, quote, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said an impeachment inquiry against President Biden will only move forward if there is a formal House vote. Quote, to open an impeachment inquiry is a serious matter, and House Republicans would not take it lightly or use it for political purposes. The American people deserve to be heard on this matter through their elected representatives, McCarthy told Breitbart News at the time in a statement just 11 days ago. That's why, he said, if we uh, move forward with an impeachment inquiry, it would occur through a vote on the floor of the People's House and not through a declaration by one person. Unquote. McCarthy's position is uh, a departure, Fox noted at the time, from how his predecessor, Uh, Representative Nancy Pelosi of California handled the first impeachment inquiry against former President Donald Trump in 2019. Pelosi unilaterally proclaimed that the House would advance an impeachment inquiry against Trump after the controversy over his infamous phone call with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. So that was Fox News 11 days ago, chiding Nancy Pelosi still. Even now, all these years later, for declaring uh, unilaterally an impeachment inquiry. Well, 
Kevin McCarthy, of course, doesn't roll that way. The American people deserve to be heard, he said, through their elected representatives, he said, which is why, quote, if we move forward with an impeachment inquiry, it would occur through a vote on the floor of the People's House and not through a declaration by one person. That was... House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, just 11 days ago, this was the declaration by one person, Kevin McCarthy, at the Capitol on Tuesday afternoon. Today, I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. This logical next step will give our committees the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the American public. That's exactly what we want to know, the answers. I believe the president would want to answer these questions and allegations as well. This effort will be led by Chairman James Comer at the Committee on Oversight in coordination with Chairman Jim Jordan for Judiciary Committee and Chairman Jason Smith on Ways and Means. Now, I do not make this decision lightly. And regardless of your party or who you voted for, these facts should concern all Americans. <laughs> I'm sure they do. He offered, in fact, no evidence whatsoever in those remarks to support his supposed facts. And he took no questions from the media representing concerned Americans. Uh, he just walked off afterwards. As he launched the historic proceeding ahead of the 2024 election, McCarthy said the House Oversight Committee's investigation has found a, quote, culture of corruption around the Biden family as Republicans probe the business dealings of Biden's son, Hunter, from before the Democratic president took office. And by, quote, culture of corruption, he actually means that, yes, they haven't found any actual evidence of wrongdoing by Joe Biden. So a general sort of culture of corruption will apparently have to do for this part of the GOP Trump sponsored Kabuki theater where they all pretend to be concerned about a culture of corruption after how many years of looking the other way from an actual empire of corruption built by the former president. The announcement, of course, comes as the Republican leader faces mounting pressure from his far right flank to take action against Biden while he also is struggling to pass legislation needed to avoid a federal government shutdown at the end of this month. An inquiry is a step toward an actual impeachment vote in the House, and McCarthy essentially outlined potential charges the Republican leader is, as AP reports, trying to keep his most farthest right caucus members satisfied and prevent his own ouster. Government funding, meanwhile, is set to run out on September 30, which is the end of the federal fiscal year, and Congress must pass new funding bills or risk a shutdown and the interruption of government services, which you would think for serious lawmakers would be a pretty big concern, but of course these are not serious lawmakers. They are far-right and or captured Republican lawmakers desperate to stay in power, even if it means taking really self-destructive actions to please the far-right base that they spent years riling up over pretend corruption scandals so that they would not have to deal with real ones. 
Biden's White House has dismissed the impeachment push as politically motivated. Quote, Speaker McCarthy shouldn't cave to the extreme far right members who are threatening to shut down the government unless they get a baseless, evidence free impeachment of President Biden. The consequences for the American people are too serious, White House spokesman Ian Sams has said. The impeachment push comes as Trump, who was twice impeached by the House for actual high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, as he faces actual serious criminal charges in at least four different courts at both the state and federal level, including for a massive conspiracy to undermine the U.S. government by stealing a presidential election. Congressman Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee and a House impeachment manager for one of the two Trump impeachments, called the GOP's plan, quote, a transparent effort to boost Donald Trump's campaign by establishing a false moral equivalency between Trump, the four time indicted former president and Joe Biden, who faces, quote, Zero evidence of wrongdoing whatsoever, said Raskin. Well, if you're going to insist evidence is needed for these sorts of things, (laughs) Congressman, how pre-2020 of you, sir? House Republicans are probing the business dealings of Hunter Biden. They're doing so in three separate House committees, but they so far have failed to produce hard evidence linking any of his deals to the president. An impeachment inquiry? Republicans seem to believe would provide more heft to the House investigation. It won't necessarily produce more actual evidence, however. Republicans contend the Justice Department has not fully probed the allegations against Hunter Biden, and they say he received preferential treatment in what they call a sweetheart plea deal that recently collapsed. The Department of Justice has appointed a special prosecutor in that probe. That prosecutor, a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, has been investigating Hunter Biden's business dealings for years now, five years, in fact. I guess that's that uh, sweetheart uh, special preferential treatment. Five years since he was appointed to do so, by the way, by Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr. And they're still looking for more evidence. Now, if you actually uh, pay attention to the treatment that Hunter has received, it is anything but preferential. It is, in fact, the opposite of that. Anyone else who had committed the same apparent indiscretions that uh, Hunter Biden did would likely never have been prosecuted for them, except for the fact that he's the president's son. The charges brought against him in a plea deal that collapsed over a disagreement as to whether that plea deal meant that he could be further prosecuted for the same crimes in the future if a Republican captured the White House. Uh, Those charges were for taxes that he paid later than he was supposed to and for failing to admit that he had used illegal drugs while buying a gun which he had for 11 days before getting rid of it and uh, reportedly never either either loading it or or firing it. So if you can find anyone who has been prosecuted for similar charges, I would love to hear about it. At the same time, three different House committees in the GOP-run U.S. House have been investigating these very same matters, and they have yet to produce any independently verifiable evidence that Joe Biden has been involved in a crime, much less a high crime or misdemeanor for which one might impeach a sitting president. 
Nonetheless, quote, we will go wherever the evidence takes us, said McCarthy, as he desperately hopes to not be tossed from the speakership by his own party. How desperate is he? Well, according to Fox News, just 11 days ago, he said in a statement that unlike Nancy Pelosi, quote, if Republicans were to open an impeachment inquiry, it would only be after a full vote of the House. But, you know, that was 11 days ago and. This is now. The White House has insisted Biden was not involved in his son's business dealings, and Republicans have failed to produce hard, independently verifiable evidence that he was, and yet that lack of evidence is seemingly enough to begin what Republicans describe as not an impeachment, but an impeachment inquiry, where they decide if they will vote to uh, impeach eventually, maybe, someday, we will see. And this comes as federal government funding is set to run out in less than a month, uh, which at the end of the fiscal federal fiscal year at the end of this month, at least without new spending, uh, new spending bill to fund the government. So this risks a shutdown and the interruption of government services. Again, that's the other way that Republicans pretend to do politics when they are out of power in the White House. The far right wingers in the House who control McCarthy's speakership, they want to slash social spending on government services for citizens. And the hard right is unwilling to approve spending levels that the speaker himself had negotiated with Joe Biden earlier this year. They're hoping to upend the deal that he uh, agreed to after they had held hostage the good faith and credit of the United States, and they had threatened to default for the first time in U.S. history. McCarthy is, in that case, trying to float a 30-day stopgap measure to keep the government running through at least November 1, but his right flake is balking at that, at adopting what's called a continuing resolution, or a CR, to temporarily continue current spending levels to keep the government open and operating as they try to get deeper cuts to wildly popular programs. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia said late Monday, exiting McCarthy's office, that she has, quote, red lines against any new money being spent for COVID-19 vaccines or against Russia's war in Ukraine. By the way, the CDC today approved the new COVID-19 vaccine and are recommending that everyone over the age of six get a booster, as once again, uh, the rates of infection are rising. Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, a uh, big Trump ally, he's warning that uh, McCarthy could face blowback from the far right of the caucus if he does not push for hard spending cuts in that deal. Uh, At the start of the year, Gates and other Republicans secured agreements from McCarthy, some in secret, as he struggled to win their uh, votes to become House Speaker. It took 15 votes, in case you forgot. Lord knows how many concessions were made by uh, Kevin McCarthy. Under the House rules, eventually approved by Republicans in exchange for McCarthy's speakership, McCarthy's opponents are able at any time to call a vote to oust him from the speakership. And that, of course, is why McCarthy has no choice but to play along with the impeachment scheme. 
Uh, I'm sure it won't hurt them at all in 2024. Pennsylvania's Democratic Senator John Fetterman may speak for many in his caucus when he expressed his very serious concerns about McCarthy's unilateral announcement today. Ask you about this news that uh, Speaker McCarthy has formally launched an impeachment in Has sure. said he's going to. Oh my God, back. really? Oh my gosh, you know, oh, it's devastating. <laughs> Ooh, don't do it. Please don't do it. Oh, no. Oh, no. I guess uh, I guess John Fetterman is feeling better <laughs> these days. Yeah. But hey, listen, if you can't beat him, impeach him. That seems to be the emerging new politics of the Republican Party. It is not new. Of course, they pulled a similar stunt, you may recall, against President Bill Clinton some years ago, even though in that case they had you know, evidence of an actual crime to work with as weak sauce as it might have been for removal from office. And it did not work out well for them in the next election. Now, even though an elephant is is the GOP's mascot, it seems their memories are not very good. So, yes, please proceed, Mr. Speaker. And while that impeachment drama, which appears little more than playtime for the no-policy authoritarian right-wing Trump kitties in D.C., as that uh, effort moves forward, an effort by far-right authoritarians to impeach in Wisconsin appears to have potentially far more serious consequences. The man who knows Wisconsin better than anyone, journalist John Nichols, joins us next to explain. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com slash donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. All right, we gave you a heads up on this story. Almost a month ago, just days after Wisconsin's Supreme Court majority flipped for the first time in 15 years to four to three control by liberal jurists, all of them women, by the way, after Janet Protasiewicz won her seat as a justice back in April in what amounted to a landslide election, 11 points in the otherwise closely divided presidential battleground state. She was seated as a justice on August 1, and as Bradblog.com's legal analyst Ernie Canning reported shortly thereafter, two voter petitions were filed directly with the high court on August 2, challenging the state's long gerrymandered state assembly and state senate maps, which have locked in majorities in Wisconsin in both chambers for Republicans over most of the past decade. Ever since then, Republican Governor Scott Walker first approved the new wildly partisan gerrymandered maps way back in 2011. Those same Arguably stolen legislative majorities were able to lock in their corrupted maps for another decade recently, or so they thought. 
even after the 2020 census, when the gerrymandered Republican legislature overrode a veto by the state's now two-term Democratic governor, Tony Evers. Last year, when those maps were challenged at the Wisconsin Supreme Court, they were upheld by the court's then four to three right wing majority. This time, a challenge to those maps with liberals now in the majority threatens to undo all of the manufactured, gerrymandered power that Republicans have carved out for themselves in the statehouse. Under the maps in use over the past decade, as one of the two petitions to the high court spells out, quote, since 2012, even when Democrats have won as much as 53 percent of the vote, they have held no more than 39 of the 99 assembly seats in the same period when Republicans have won as little as 44.8 percent of the statewide vote. They have held no fewer than 66 of the 99 seats and saw victories that yielded them 22 of 33 Senate seats. In the November 2022 election, Republicans won 64 of 99 assembly seats and saw victories that yielded them 22 of 33 Senate seats. At the same time, in that same election, Democratic candidates won three of five statewide elections. Yes, when the entire state votes in recent elections, they choose Democrats. When they're forced to vote using the GOP's corruptly drawn districts, Republicans predictably hang on to power. The two petitions filed at the state Supreme Court to be heard under the court's newly elected liberal majority would, if successful, result in newly drawn fair maps that threaten the GOP's tenuous hold on power in both chambers of the statehouse. One of the suits, in fact, calls for not only new maps, but new emergency elections for every member of the state Senate next year. Since, as the petitioners argue, some state senators would otherwise be holding seats in corruptly drawn districts through 2026. Democracy and fair maps appear now to be a grave threat to what remains of GOP power in the state, and they know it. And so, rather than win over the hearts and minds of voters, they're now simply calling for the impeachment of the newly seated justice, Janet Protasewicz, before she has even heard a single case. They charge she must either recuse from the uh, from the cases challenging the state's state maps or face removal from office by the gerrymandered state legislature. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss claims that while running for her seat earlier this year, Protosewitz improperly described Wisconsin's rigged state maps as, quote, rigged. But as ridiculous and or authoritarian as all of this sounds, this appears to be no idle threat by the far right wingers who seemingly have more than enough votes to impeach Protosewitz in the assembly and exactly enough votes, two thirds in the state Senate to remove her from office after an impeachment trial. Now, when we first began covering this story a month or so ago, I checked in with our, our old friend and longtime native Wisconsinite John Nichols, national correspondent for The Nation, 
who told me via email that Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss was, quote, making a lot of noise to mollify the right, but he's unlikely to go ahead with the threat because he knows the Senate is not on board and because the political winds are blowing hard against him this summer, John said. Nichols described what is happening as, quote, an intimidation tactic, an attempt to get the liberal justices to blink and act more cautiously. He told me via email that, quote, we're in for a wild ride, but one where the liberals have and maintain the upper hand. Okay, but the political winds in the Badger State can also change very quickly this time of year. Are they still blowing against Republicans now that it is fall? Because they sure seem to be gunning for removing Protosewitz from office. And as it turns out, they don't even have to get a two-thirds vote for removal in the Senate to do it under Wisconsin's impeachment rules. Joining us to explain all of that and the political winds blowing along with it all is Wisconsin's favorite son, national affairs correspondent at The Nation, associate editor of his local Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, and co-author of It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, what I think is his latest book written with none other than Senator Bernie Sanders, the one and only John Nichols. Mr. Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, John, uh, 15 years ago, when Scott Walker had just taken office, he was threatening to strip public unions of their rights in the state, which was the birthplace of the modern labor movement. After the state legislature had changed their own rules to muscle through these restrictions on collective bargaining, I'd warned that Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin's legislature was really a laboratory for Republican autocracy at the time. And... Similarly, gerrymandered GOP state legislatures across the country, I think, have proven me right on that, as they have since matched your state's move to the authoritarian right. But this move, this attack on the state Supreme Court is, as you noted uh, recently at The Nation, quote, extreme even by Wisconsin Republican standards. Has anything like this ever been tried in the state before, as far as you know, or really in any other state at this point? Well, nothing like this has been tried in the state before. Uh, in fact, the last time there was even an effort to impeach a state Supreme Court justice, a serious effort, it was in the 1850s, mm-hmm. and there was some real corruption involved there. So it was a, it was legitimately done. Mm-hmm. And also, um, what we're seeing in Wisconsin is unprecedented, really, for state or federal courts in this manner, because what the Republicans have moved to say or moved to suggest mm-hmm. is that they want to impeach Janet Protosiewicz, not because she has violated any ethics rule, not because she has violated any law, not because she is in, you know, contravention of you know any aspect of the Constitution. They've got none of that. There's mm-hmm. nothing. They simply say they don't like something she said during the campaign. And that is that is. And we can get into it deeper in a little bit, but that's mm-hmm. something the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled very clearly in a decision written by Anthony Scalia that you can't sanction someone for that. You can't punish someone for something they said as a judicial candidate. So there's zero legitimacy to what they're doing. And, you know, we were you were talking about some of the things we've said you know, along the way through this fight. It's an interesting dynamic here because what I think and what I know began as an intimidation tactic, an effort to try and force 
Curtis Saywitz to recuse, yeah. which failed. She has not chosen to recuse at this point, mm-hmm. and she shouldn't. In fact, if she did, that would actually be an insult to her own supporters. But this effort has then kind of evolved into a, kind of a, a, a game of uh, chicken, right, where the Republicans keep upping their threat, uh-huh. talking more and more about impeachment, never actually launching it, by the way, but talking more and more about well, it. Well, not yet. Not yet. Right. We'll we see. hope that she would blink, right? They're seeing, can we up the, up the ante to an even higher level, yeah. right? And what that has done is cause the Democrats to recognize that, you know, this is a serious threat, mm-hmm. not because it's legitimate, right. but because these folks might well do something crazy. Mm-hmm. And here's where the twist comes in, Brad, and this is the big deal. There's a, a, a clause in the state constitution that's become really the heart of the whole matter. Yeah. And that is a clause that says that if you are impeached by the state assembly, you cannot rule on cases that come before the court. Mm-hmm. And this is the key to it, because we've always known that there weren't the votes in the state Senate, that even though Republicans control the Senate by a wide margin, they're not going to get to that two-thirds majority for conviction, at least in talking to senators and, frankly, even listening to the head of the Senate. Um, uh, there's just been a discomfort with the idea of taking it up. Mm-hmm. But because of that clause, they don't have to send it to the Senate. They can just impeach her and then leave her in limbo for a year and a half, at least till the legislative session ends, right. which would eliminate any action as regards the 2024 maps, potentially even the 2026 maps. And so now, because of that clause, there's at least an entertainment of the possibility. And you have really, at this point, a high-stakes war, political war, in Wisconsin, where the Democrats are up with ads. This is just like campaign season. They're up with ads saying this would be a horrible idea. Newspapers are editorializing. Uh, people are rallying. Mm-hmm. And it's all with the idea of trying to convince the Republicans not to go ahead with this, mm-hmm. not in the assembly, not to go ahead with it. They've had some success. Uh, one Republican legislator, a, a newly elected rural legislator who won by a pretty narrow margin, announced uh, last week that he would not vote to impeach right? because he didn't think it was legit. And obviously, they're trying to get those numbers up to get more. But, you know, here's the bottom line. If Voss wants to do this, if he decides to do it, and and I would be the first to tell you, I don't think he has decided to do it yet. I think he's wrestling with the question. Mm. But if he decides to go forward with it, he'll be able to do it. And if he does do that, then you're going to have this limbo situation for protosewitz. And the challenge to that will not come in the state. The challenge to that will then be to move it into the federal courts where already there are lawyers mustering for this battle, a federal court battle, which would argue that that decision I mentioned a few minutes ago by Scalia, which says that you can't take away First Amendment rights from judicial candidates, that that would come in because if they impeach her for saying the maps were rigged, Mm -hmm. that would be in direct contravention of what the U.S. Supreme Court has said. And they might, might get a federal (laughs) court ruling on their side. But that's... That's the roller coaster ride, brother. Boy, looking it, at it, it, all of this. It really is, and I think there's a few more uh, highs and lows in that roller coaster. Let me that I want to get to in a minute uh, regarding what will happen if, in fact, they impeach, but you know, slow walk uh, sending it to the Senate. But let me talk just specifically about the charges here. Uh, this was 
back in, I guess, earlier this year when she was running for office, she had described the state's legislative maps as, quote, rigged and, quote, unfair. Now, the Republicans argue that that means she has already made up her mind about the two cases filed by the voters, you know, before she was even seated. Are they right about that? She did say they were rigged. Does that, should that disqualify her from sitting on a challenge over those very maps? Let's begin with the core concept. Are they, are they rigged? Jennifer Sabitz is far from the first person to suggest that. Uh, PolitiFact and, and other nonpartisan uh-huh. you know, fact agencies have looked at these maps and said, even if they didn't use the exact word rigged, they, mm-hmm. have, they have effectively declared that it is true to say that they are radically skewed in mm-hmm. favor of the Republicans, i.e. rigged. And so you've got also you have a federal judge saying that mm-hmm. uh, in a case that was brought uh, a couple of years ago. So the bottom line is that there's pretty close to universal agreement by any nonpartisan or uh, you know honest observer that they're rigged. Mm-hmm. So what she stated was a fact that <laughs> people are quite comfortable with. Um, you can't be impeached for stating a fact, right? right? I mean, Legitimately, you shouldn't be able to be impeached for stating a fact. Well, you can be impeached for anything because impeachment anything. is a political act, not a, a you know and criminal, right? Me, I might even have taught you that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Because I've written books on this, and I, that's yep. exactly right. Correct. Uh, but it is it is so far outside the boundaries of you know what we have traditionally understood for impeachment that it it becomes a, a very very um, weak argument that someone stated a fact and you're going to try and remove them for that. Um, so then we get to the second part. Even if it wasn't a, a almost universally agreed upon reality that the maps are rigged, uh, we have this uh, precedent from the Supreme Court in an almost identical circumstance. A candidate running for the Minnesota Supreme Court back in uh, 2002, 2003, or it was around, I guess it was around 2000 or so, um, but the case came in 2002 mm-hmm. to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And the, in Minnesota, they said, you know, they were going to punish this guy, or at least this guy said he was threatened with punishment because he stated his views on some social issues during the campaign, mm-hmm. or if he stated his views on those issues. The Supreme Court said, you can't do that. You can't take away the First Amendment rights of a judicial candidate. You can't punish that person mm-hmm. for what they say as a candidate. It's just, it doesn't, that is not something you can do. And so if they go forward with this, you have both the the argument of truth. Right. But then you also have the First Amendment argument. And those are those are pretty good, you know, for for rational people, pretty good arguments may not be sufficient for the Republicans in the Wisconsin legislature. Well, uh, even in Wisconsin, uh, as New York Times reports in years past, conservative justices in Wisconsin have argued that personal views they had uh, previously stated did not mean they were required to recuse. For example, Justice Brian Hagedorn once compared homosexuality to bestiality. He called Planned Parenthood, quote, a wicked organization. And he wrote, quote, Christianity is the correct religion and that insofar as others contradict it, they are wrong. He has said that those statements... This is Hagedorn has said this would not warrant his recusal on cases about abortion, gay rights or religion. I don't know how they square the, uh, how uh, Wisconsin Republicans will square that circle. But doesn't that doesn't this entire impeachment threat also risk blowback against all of the other judges on the high court 
who have made comments, including about the rigged maps, because all six of them, uh, other than <clears throat> other than Protosewitz, were on the court last year, gave their own opinions on a previous challenge to these maps. What about their opinions about the maps? Shouldn't well, they, they have to recuse? There you go, Brad. You just opened up even the next stage of this, which is, <laughs> can you be, could you be impeached for stating your view on an issue that you ruled out on the court? Right. Uh, you know, actually in your ruling. Yeah. Of course, that's so absurd that maybe we wouldn't get to that for a couple more months. Um, <laughs> but the this is the interesting thing. Hagedorn's actually on the current court. The guy you mentioned. Right. He's something moderate. He is. He's not the most extreme. The fact of the matter Wait. is, you. Oh, without a doubt, <laughs> yeah. Hagedorn's. Higginon has actually been a swing vote, conservative, but a swing Oy. on many issues. Um, the, uh, there's other justices on the court who have said equally extreme things and have shown you know, a, a clear connection between what they've said mm -hmm. and what they've done, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's a much, you know, with Hagedorn, you at least have some evidence of, uh, of a willingness to try and you know, balance the issues and stuff like that. Uh, Rebecca Bradley, who is an ex the extreme right member of the court, mm -hmm. as well as uh, the Chief Justice Ziegler, have both uh, had patterns of, you know, saying extreme things, aligning with political partisans. And here's the interesting thing. They were confronted with the question of whether to require recusals in situations like this several years ago. Mm -hmm. And they voted against it. They, the ones who are now saying, and these are conservatives on the court, who are now saying that Protosewicz should recuse because of things she said during the campaign, blocked an effort to create a recu recusal rule on the court based on this exact issue. Now, if um, if they do end up moving forward with, uh, you know, of course, hypocrisy, the idea that they would be called hypocrites has never stopped the Republicans, especially Wisconsin Republicans, from doing anything. But if they went ahead and moved forward with impeachment, slow walked it in the Senate, they could essentially slow walk it as long as they wanted to. Even if there was a challenge to the federal courts, to the Supreme Courts, that would take time. In the meantime, Janet Protasewicz would not be able to decide on these issues. We'd end up with a three to three split on the court. If, as I understand, uh, in Wisconsin, if she then, Protasewicz said, OK, I am going to resign. My understanding is the governor, in this case, the Democratic governor, Tony Evers, could uh, appoint a replacement could he appoint her as her own replacement? As best the reading of the state constitution is, yes, he could. There isn't any. There isn't anything in there that says that uh, that she couldn't, you know, be returned to the court or appointed to another court. And so you've got that that reality. You also have the reality that Evers could appoint someone who is even more progressive. There than you Protestant. go. Right. There are, in fact, are some uh, Protestant, which is is a very mainstream. Right. Uh, liberal jurist. She's not, she's not somebody, she beat somebody in the primary who was, mm -hmm. was to her left. Mm -hmm. And so there's plenty of judges around who would, would arguably be uh, more progressive. And so Evers could do that and then have somebody who, who, you know, had come in clean. The problem, and what I mean by clean is that they haven't run in a campaign, so they haven't made statements technically that, right. that might be quote unquote disqualifying. But then here's the problem. It's a groundhog day scenario, Brad, because uh, the governor could appoint uh, again, could appoint somebody else, but then the legislature could impeach the next day. <laughs> really? <laughs> of course. There's no limit on how many times they can impeach. 
Uh, well, you got to so, fight fire with fire, John. I mean, these people, the way these Republicans are acting, it does seem like, you know, if that's what it, you know, they they seem like they are begging for a constitutional crisis. Uh, at some point, Democrats may have to decide, all right, let's give them one. I, I know it's insane, but this is what the Republicans have been doing in Wisconsin for the past, what, 15 years. And 15. yeah. And 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 you know you can keep letting them walk all over you, or you can you know fight fire with fire. Oh, I think that there is some some entertainment of that notion, and I think that if you're looking at uh, the Democratic Party of Wisconsin's response to that, uh, led by its chair Ben Wickler, mm-hmm. I mean they're they're going very aggressive on this. And you know, look, there is a there's a growing comfort level, I think, on the part of Democrats who have kind of been the the rule the rule definers, the rule followers in Wisconsin politics to recognize that they, they've kind of put themselves in a corner. They keep getting the football pulled out from in front of them, like <laughs> with uh, Lucy and Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is a, 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 a willingness to push harder, to fight harder. But that even with that, because of the gerrymander, and this is kind of the, the original sin of the whole thing, because the gerrymander is so extreme, even if Democrats push hard, right, mm-hmm. and even if does the right thing on, on a reappointment, something like that, you still end up with the Republicans having something of an upper hand as regards that that impeachment issue, right? They they It's unlikely they can be prevented from doing it unless there is a revolt within their own ranks. And at this point, Robin Boss um, clearly has control of his caucus, although it's it's less than it was. And he's He's in a difficult situation because he's got right-wingers, Trump people who don't like him because mm-hmm. they don't think he's extreme enough. Right. Then he's, you know, some not so much moderates, but people who are in swing districts who are a little bit concerned. So this brings us back to the thing we were saying back earlier this summer, where I would argue that this is still up for grabs. You know what I mean? It's This mm. is an intimidation tactic gone awry. And the best way to understand it is in, you know, like some bad movie where somebody, you know, is going to threaten somebody and then the gun goes off. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the question now is, you know, where where we're at in that movie and whether um, whether boss is ready to, you know, is, is kind of in a corner. And does he back down, perhaps risking some uh, revolt among his own members, uh, at least and some of the more extreme folks? Or does he go ahead with this, you know, hoping to create this limbo situation and then thus dividing himself from the head of the state Senate? It's these things are all I mean, it's genuinely up for grabs. And that's why this intervention by the Democratic Party is so interesting. They're going up with four million dollars of TV advertising, social media, a lot of genuine push. And I got to tell you, Brad, this has become a very live issue in the state. It's almost like an election season. People are everybody's talking about it. Everybody's paying attention. Well, you know, I'm glad to hear that, because when I heard that they were spending four million dollars on this particular campaign to essentially call out the Republicans for this, you know, scheme to undermine elections, really. I mean, that's really what it is. The woman was just elected by a a Wisconsin landslide and they're already trying to remove her from office. When I heard about that, I thought, okay, great. They're being aggressive. Four million dollars. But guess what? That's four million dollars they can't spend. 
in in, uh, in 2024 when they're running for office. Then again, it occurs to me, well, this is essentially the run for office in 2024. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Democratic Party chair out there, uh, Ben uh, Wickler, he said last night on MSNBC that if the Republicans go through with this, it could, quote, become a fireball that eats all of them up, meaning Republicans, throughout 2024. You would think... That would give them second thoughts. And yet New York Times is reporting, and I don't know if they're right. You're closer to the ground there. But they uh, report this week that Republicans appear remarkably unified around the idea of impeachment. No GOP member of the legislature has spoken out against it. I think that's changed. There was, uh, as you noted, one yesterday. Despite private concerns among some in the party that's seeking to remove a newly elected justice would be politically catastrophic. And uh, that, uh, quote, many Democrats now privately concede that impeaching Justice Protosewitz is a foregone conclusion. Is that how the Wisconsin winds are now blowing? She is going to be impeached. And what comes next on the roller coaster, we will find out. Yeah, look, I I think that we're still in the point where it it is true that that Voss has his caucus. And if he decides to go forward with it, he can pull this off. It is now a question of whether the Democratic intervention with the advertising uh, and all the push. And by the way, they'll raise more than four million for it. They'll mm-hmm. they'll have all the resources they need, I suspect. Um, can it can it cause the Republicans to blink on this one? So I don't think you can say it's a foregone conclusion that they will impeach. I would say we've moved to the point where it's likely. And the reason that it's likely, Brad, is an interesting one. They have realized once the lawsuits were filed and remember before the lawsuit filed or in the initial stages after they were filed there was sort of a uh, i think for the republicans a lack of uh, kind of sense of where this all was going to go mm-hmm. got more clarity on this it's very likely the court you know if if the court moves forward on these that that they're going to be upended politically these these lawsuits are well drawn they're well thought and um, they form the basis for a, a legitimate intervention by the court to overturn the district lines. Right. They're basically this is self-preservation at this point. And if you know anything about politics, self-preservation is a stronger motivation than partisanship or ideology. Mm. And, and so um, that's what kind of tips the balance toward a likelihood of impeachment, but not a certainty even yet, uh, because that self-preservation instinct can take you two directions. One. If you if you don't do this, these lines are going to go against you and you're Mm -hmm. going to be in trouble or two. If you do this, this is so extreme and so well understood by people that at that point, legislators are going to decide, no, I'd I'd rather run the risk on this. And then we're left with one interesting final aspect of this, which is what I refer to as the Hagedorn factor. And remember, we talked a little bit ago about Brian Hagedorn, Mm -hmm. the swing vote on the court, very conservative on social issues, much more responsible on some democracy issues. And for instance, during COVID, he he broke with the conservatives on some issues and frankly, on overturning the 2020 election. Right. He broke with the conservatives and signed sided with the more liberal members. If Brian Hagedorn were to side with the liberals Mm -hmm. and if it were to become clear that he was going to do that, then impeaching pro se would become irrelevant. There you go, uh, which would be interesting because, uh, you know, 
You're right. This is about their own survival. And I think the Republicans know that they're looking at the statewide uh, elections that have all been going to Democrats lately. They realize they do not hold power if there is fair maps in Wisconsin. And along with that, you've got overturning the uh, Wisconsin's uh, 1849 ban on abortion. You've got the questions about former Governor Scott Walker's union rights restrictions, voting rights in the state. All of that is on the table along with their their gerrymandered majority at this point. I mean, I, I, you know, the, I, I wonder what it is they wouldn't do to hang on to power at that point, because it all goes. By the way, uh, Protosewitz carried 12, when she ran in uh, April, she carried 12 Republican-held districts in the state assembly and six in the state Senate. That's with the gerrymandered maps. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, talk about the political winds. They do seem to be blowing in favor of Democrats right now, and I wouldn't put anything past Republicans to try to change that. Well, and, and if I could throw one last thing, and I know yeah. I get toward the end of time here, but I'll throw one last thing in, too. As we speak, Republicans in the legislature are trying to throw out the head of the state election board. Oh, well, right? that's right. They're doing that, too, <laughs> aren't they? And, and so, you know, the best way to understand the Republican Party of Wisconsin is that this is a political party that's in crisis, yep. right? And their crisis is that the state, which really was pretty evenly divided mm-hmm. of the last six presidential elections, four decided by under 25,000 votes, statewide elections often decided by a handful of votes, a very closely divided state. There is mounting evidence that Wisconsin is no longer that, that it is, in fact, moving toward you know, not a hardcore liberal state, but a state that is maybe 51, 52 percent Democrat and Mm -hmm. that it's going to probably because of abortion rights and other issues that mobilize young voters who tend to vote more Democratic, likely to kind of stay in that leaning Democratic to actually relatively solidly Democratic column. If that's the case, then for the Republicans, the only way they survive politically is to either change, become a much more moderate party. They're unlikely to do that. Right. Or game the process. Game the system, which is always uh, in recent years what it seems that they choose. By the way, that head of the uh, Wisconsin Election Commission uh, that they're trying to oust, she was appointed by Republicans, as I recall, and they're trying and to get rid of her. No liberal, let yeah. me tell you. No. She's a very moderate mainstream bureaucrat. Yeah. And frankly, uh, you guys are going to be in trouble if they succeed in getting rid of her because she's a seasoned election professional and you guys are going to have trouble holding your elections in what is it? March of next year, your primary elections. First ones we have February, uh, spring primary, April presidential, but it's more than that too. It's becoming so chaotic, such a mess that you then raise the question of if they were to remove her, what professional is going to come to fill that role? Right. I know. Right. I, that's, so, that's what I'm saying. You guys are in real trouble if they do get rid of her this soon before an election. John, I got to get out. Uh, yep. Well, gives us something to talk about in the days ahead, I suspect. Uh, John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive, associate editor of the local Madison, Wisconsin Capital Times, and co-author with some guy named Bernie Sanders, uh, for the new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. You can find his work, of course, at thenation.com. You can find him on the site, still known as Twitter, at Nichols Uprising. John Nichols, always great speaking with you, my friend. We will, I suspect, be doing it soon in the future. I feel you're right.
I'm glad to talk to you, brother. Thank you, man. All right, GNR is next right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I wish. All right, let's get right to it. Our latest Green News Report. With a storm named Daniel and the relentless rains that authorities are describing as a biblical catastrophe. First Greece, now Libya. Flooding causes widespread death and devastation. The continent has enough potential to be entirely self-sufficient with the mixture of wind, solar, geothermal, sustainable biomass, and hydropower. First ever African Climate Summit issues call for global carbon tax on fossil fuels. Plus... I don't want it to happen when I'm winning up 6410. I wanted the momentum to keep going, but hey... If that's what they felt that they needed to do to get their voices heard, I can't really get upset at it. Climate protests interrupt U.S. Open Tennis Championship. All of those interruptions and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So is the government controlling the weather with laser beams? Yes, yes, they absolutely are, Jesse Waters. And you go tell everyone on Fox News about that right away. You get them. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, another grim weekend of uh, extreme weather around the world in Libya in particular. What do you got for us today? Well, first up, we are keeping an eye on Hurricane Lee, which is churning in the record hot Atlantic Ocean, where it could potentially impact the U.S. Northeast. When Lee hit Category 5 status late last week, it was a new record. For the first time, all seven tropical cyclone basins have produced a Category 5 storm in the same year. A measure of how human-caused climate change and El Nino have heated ocean waters to record levels. Or a measure of how dangerous those laser beams are. The heat in the oceans is also turbocharging astonishing storms. Hong Kong, China was absolutely crippled late last week by the heaviest rain in 140 years of record keeping. Six inches of rain in one hour turned streets into raging rivers and caused widespread infrastructure damage and destruction. In eastern Libya, officials say more than 10,000 people are missing or dead after torrential rains and floods from Mediterranean storm Daniel ripped through the city of Derna and swept away entire neighborhoods. The same storm in Greece inundated nearly 300 square miles of crops and is causing acute water shortages due to contaminated floodwaters. In other news, international climate diplomacy is shifting into high gear. At the first ever Africa Climate Summit late last week, heads of state unanimously adopted the Nairobi Declaration, which calls for a new 
new global carbon tax on fossil fuel pollution, the phasing out of coal, and ending government subsidies for fossil fuels, plus reform of the global financial system to unlock large-scale investment in clean energy. They also called for more financing from wealthy countries that are historically responsible for man-made climate change to help developing countries adapt because they are now bearing the brunt of climate impacts. They are indeed. Look at Libya. At the Group of 20 summit over the weekend, leaders agreed to triple renewable energy capacity globally by 2030 and to boost climate finance and adaptation funding for developing countries. But the G20 statement did not mention cutting emissions, and nations failed to agree to phase out fossil fuels that drive climate change, reportedly due to opposition from Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and India. What a surprise. Meanwhile, a first-of-its-kind report by the United Nations finds some progress since the Paris Climate Agreement was reached in 2015, but the report warns the world is not on target to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Quote, the window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all is rapidly closing. The report says governments must move faster to cut pollution and called for the phasing out of fossil fuels, phasing out of the internal combustion engine, and ending $450 billion in annual government subsidies for coal, oil, and natural gas. Wouldn't need to do it if we just ended all the laser beams. Finally, climate protesters interrupted the U.S. Open Tennis Championship for about an hour late last week, garnering criticism from some fans who questioned the effectiveness of lumping in potential allies with the fossil fuel industry and those responsible for delaying action. But in a press conference, new U.S. Open champion, 19-year-old Coco Goff, whose semifinal match was interrupted, says she accepts climate science and sympathizes with their goals. You know, I 100 percent, you know, believe in that. I think there's things that we can do better. The moments like this, yeah, are the history defining moments. And like I said, I prefer it not to happen in my match, but I wasn't pissed at, you know, the protesters. You know, I always speak about uh, preaching about what you feel and what you believe in. And it was done in a peaceful way, so I can't get too mad of it. Good for her. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Yes, she was. She was indeed. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to my guest today, John Nichols of The Nation, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That service is made available and free by those of you kind enough to hit that donate button at bradblog.com or just go straight to bradblog.com slash Donate. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Till we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1935. That was the day the United Rubber Workers Union was founded in Akron, Ohio. Akron was the rubber capital of the world. All the major companies were there. Goodyear, Firestone, Goodrich, and General Tire. In Akron alone, there were more than 40,000 rubber workers and thousands more throughout the country. After 30 years of struggling to build the union, hopes of organizing the industry were finally made real. The founding of the international came after a successful strike the year before. But the union was born amid growing tensions within the AFL. These were the years of industrial organizing that rivaled the exclusive skilled craft unions. Growing demands to organize the mass industries would explode the next month at the historic AFL convention in Atlantic City. The tensions between AFL leaders and rubber workers' delegates gave a taste of things to come. At the founding convention, rubber workers' delegates opposed a number of AFL leaders' demands. The AFL insisted on appointing officers. They threatened to withdraw financial assistance when the delegates demanded democratic elections. But AFL leaders backed off when unionists from across the city protested. Then, delegates voted down an AFL constitutional clause proposal to bar communists from the union. They also refused AFL orders to organize on anything less than a total industry basis. Organizing skilled workers into the United Rubber Workers became a contentious issue at the October AFL convention. It led to the fistfight between Carpenters leader Bill Hutchison and Mine Workers president John Lewis, which precipitated the AFL split. By the following spring, the new United Rubber Workers Union would lead another successful strike that put it firmly among the industrial unions of the CIO. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show.